Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 331st episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Marcus Helliker. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we're talking to Jeanette Godoy. She's an awesome filmmaker who's got a new feature out, available to stream, called Diamond in the Rough. We talked to her about her journey from starting as a prominent choreographer all the way into a can award-winning commercial director and now a television and feature director. So we've seen some twists and turns in her career. She brings all of that experience into this new film. Diamond in the Rough is available on Creator Plus now if you want to check it out. Pretty awesome talking to her. She did choreograph Baby's Got Back, one of the coolest videos of the time. She's awesome. She's got a great story and she's got a great point of view. And she's also a parent like us, which, you know, the second you become a parent, you like talking to other parents. You're no longer talking to a person that like eats, lives, and breathes filmmaking and mm-hmm. hustling all the time. You're talking to someone who has like two priorities in their life. They're eating and breathing filmmaking, but it's standing over the kitchen sink in between naps. Well, before <laughs> we hop in with Jeanette, I had two updates. One, I'm working on a job for Marriott Hotels. And did you know that it's pronounced Marriott? Not Marriott. It's been a really hard adjustment. But in case you've ever wondered, I've been pronouncing it the wrong way my entire life. I have a little bit of a pet peeve, not about Marriott, Marriott. As a freelance director or even agency side, entering a corporate atmosphere, part of the job as an advertiser is kind of like wading through all of the internal baggage of whatever the brand speak is, you know, like these people Mm -hmm. are just thinking about their branding so intensely and frankly for so long that like any baby step outside of that brand guidebook can just sounds like sacrilege but it drives me nuts when people can't take a step outside of their company for a second and realize that like oh every freaking person in the whole world says marriott just say marriott the what you're gonna be like oh on set like oh yeah i've got this cool podcast they're gonna listen to this episode and they're gonna write down my name and be like make sure to never work with this guy ever again i'm being facetious i'm being facetious no no they, they all know that everyone friends them but when they say marriott and i was like but, oh, but I, there are instances where people don't they don't hear themselves anymore they're just kind of they've they've been drinking the kool-aid they're living on the kool-aid and that can drive me a little nuts do you know who travis white is does that name ring a bell to you? Is he the Blink-182 That's drummer? Travis Barker, but that was a good guess. No, he's one of our listeners, and he emailed me about sending me a poster. Did he email you? No. Travis? I think maybe I have, like, he feels closer to me because he's asked me about VFX things in the past, and I've responded to him. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Sure. Yeah, yeah. He was like, hey, I want to send you something. I don't want to tell you what it is. Travis... I'm teasing. I'm giving you a hard time. It's okay to send Oren stuff. 
And I'm like, absolutely not going to get, by the way, he emailed me from a different email address too. I'm like, I don't know if I'm hundred percent sure who you are. And I'm not going to give someone my mailing address for them to send me a mystery box. And then he's like, okay, fine. I'll tell you what it is. And it's, he hand makes these movie posters. He has a store on Etsy. It's called wall of words art. He takes the text from a screenplay, writes it out by hand, the entire screenplay on a poster board. And in the text, he makes like these movie posters. That sounds very cool. The deep size, because before I was joking about how I'm annoyed and now I'm obviously annoyed because of the two of us, one of us clearly would like that more than yes. the other, Travis. So he had written out the entire first Avengers movie. Mm-hmm. He's like, it's a 160 page script. He like makes the movie posters out of the text. Wall of words art on Etsy. Um, and yeah, it's really cool. And he's done a few different movies. I think he keeps on doing more. He has like a Jason, like a Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees one. Avengers, Walking Dead, but check out his stuff. It's it's really cool. And he does prints also. If you're into screenwriting or movies or where the two intersect, quite literally, uh, you should check out his stuff, Wall of Words Art. These are legitimately cool. Anyhow, if you'd like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. Give us a, a dollar a month, $2 a month. Our new patron this month, Marcus Helliker, he was part of the editing team on Come On, Come On, a movie that I worked on as well. It's awesome to know that we work with people and somehow they find the podcast and they listen to it. Anyway, for $15 a month, you can get a Just Shoot It podcast hat. And I went to a director hang last night and quite a few people at that hang were like, I would love one of those hats. And I told them I would consider giving them a deal. So they're popular. Famous directors, TV directors, film directors, all directors need a Just Shoot It hat, something that will protect your face from the sun and also remind you that you should just shoot that thing that you've been meaning to shoot. Okay, patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. Now, let's talk to Jeanette. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Jeanette Godoy, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. You're a director. You have a movie. Currently out. It premiered June 29th. And where can people watch it? So it's a new streaming platform called Creator Plus. The great thing about it is that you you don't need to have a subscription. It's a sort of a one-off. You can just get the movie, rent it. It's got a bunch of features if you watch it on your phone. It's exciting to be the first movie on the platform. It's kind of a big deal. That's very exciting. Yeah. I want to talk about that, but also you are a very famous <laughs> choreographer. Um, I wouldn't say I was very famous. I did do a very famous music video. You can name like two choreographers and you're one of them. So All right. That, may, that makes me feel better. My famous video was Baby Got Back. That's like as famous as music videos get. It's pretty crazy. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> when you guys made it, did you realize it was going to be? Not at hit? all. I mean, <laughs> I thought it was a hilarious song. I thought it was a great. I loved the music, you know aspect of it I thought was great it was great to dance to it was great to make up choreography to and I just I just thought the song was brilliant but of course had no idea you know who knew that the video was just going to be so scandalous I mean at that time they wouldn't even air it on MTV until after 10 p.m which you know when you look at music videos now which PS Mm -hmm, MTV doesn't even air music videos anymore but I mean when you see them now you're like wow that was tame comparatively but uh It was pretty scandalous at the time. And so how did you get into music video choreography? Yeah, I I came out here from, I grew up in Pomona and Riverside. I went to school at UCLA. I was working at a law firm the whole time that I was going to school to help pay for my tuition. The lawyers just were like, don't do this if this is not what you love. Like you can't, you can't do this. It's, It's just too intense. So I decided to pursue dance. I auditioned for a dance agent. You know, I started auditioning for dance jobs. I booked some stuff. I didn't book most of the stuff. I was terrible at auditioning, it turns out. But I had always wanted to be a choreographer. I always made up dances since I was a little kid. Early in my career, I just thought, this is actually what I want to do. And I Mm -hmm. started, you know, reaching out to producers and saying, you know, hire me. I'll do it for free. I need to build a reel, just like directors do. You know, you start, you have to start just creating your own work and your own reel. Though nowadays, I imagine like a lot of choreographers are, I'm assuming, discovered on like Instagram and TikTok and those places. Yeah, absolutely. I am curious, having worked with choreographers only a handful of times, about the difference in skill sets between just kind of classically trained dancers and choreographers, right? Because like, just because you're a great football player doesn't mean that you're a great coach, right? Or or that you know how to coach more importantly and we'll get into the directing stuff soon but i'm I'm just curious of like oh like what are the finer points of the the two positions basically the main skill is you know you have to be able to communicate with people what it is you're trying to do i feel (laughs) like as a as a trained dancer i can do the moves i can show them the moves like you're literally training them what you know what to do for film it's just a different space you're collaborating with the director 
you're looking at the shot, you're figuring out what the needs are, how close the camera is going to be, where the camera is going to move, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just something I picked up just by being on set, you know, being a dancer on set, watching and paying attention, similarly to learning how to direct. If there's a director listening that is wants to do a musical or wants to do a music video with some choreography, good choreography that is, you know, choreographed by a real choreographer, what should they do to prepare for like that first meeting with the choreographer? When you were a choreographer, what was your favorite type of input to get from do a director? Do what you want. <laughs> Do what you want. I mean, no, you you know, certainly, I mean, people are, have always come with footage from things that they've seen or, you know, old movies or other music videos or this style and looking for this style, you know, kind of thing. And then definitely it's about the song. Like, what's the music? You know, it's like Baby Got Back. I kind of had to choreograph what the music was telling me to do. Like, the, there's also that, you know? So you have to choreograph butts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't you though? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> but I look at a movie like La La Land or something, you know, where the choreography, you know, they have the whole dance sequence on the freeway. I do wonder, like, how do you start imagining that? Like, do you just sit down like blue sky time, you and the choreographer and you're like, hey, this is our location and this is the type of ways we can move our camera. How do we take advantage of that? What's step one for the. I mean, the I think it's it's the playtime with the choreographer to see even before they're designing the shots, it's like, okay, well, what can we do? I want to see, you know, I'd love to go down this hall and end up in, you know, or we want to jump on the car and I want to be up there. So it's the music. It's like, what kind of music are they composing for the scene? It's going to dictate the movement, but also what can they do? I mean, it depends on how the director works, but I feel like a choreographer is going, we could hop up on the cars and then he can flip and go around the back end, slide down, jump up on the next car. And then, you know, and then the director is is designing their shots around that or or vice versa. I mean, it just depends, really depends on the project. A lot of directors don't really know how to talk to someone about choreography. That's kind of the beautiful thing about being a choreographer. It's like you have so much input usually into what you're doing because you're the expert. You're the legit expert. I did a big flash mob with Alan where we were dancing all over the Gilmore Girls town. We danced across. Mm, that's fun. Everyone just kind of has to pull from whatever their skill sets are, right? So like mm -hmm. I had a decent amount of music training growing up and zero dance. So I really kind of relied on my abilities to, you know, speak through character and camera and then use the music as a way of sort of facilitating that you know or at least figuring out timing and transitions and things like that and then I found it really fulfilling actually I really really loved it the, maybe the best part is like getting to work with different crafts people who are experts mm -hmm. right to your point Jeanette it's like oh these people are way 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 more knowledgeable than you can afford to be and so you get to be inspired by them and, you know, collaborate with them and they'll come up with things that, you know, you don't even have the vocabulary to articulate. Adding a new person to that team, to that arsenal of artists is so fun. Yeah, super fun. It's like working with stunt people. You know, there's like a handful of craftspeople that like the project really has to require them to be part of the budget, frankly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And like stunt people, I guess, when I worked with them, a lot of times they'll be like, you know, mm -hmm. this will look really good from this angle. Did you ever do that as a choreographer? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the thing too, that's, that's interesting, which is similar to stunts is like, not just the angle. It's like, wh what can you do with the camera where it is, like where the camera's mm -hmm. living? 
right? Like how close can you get in your movement, the extension of your arms and all of that and turning and, and legs and big, you know, developes around. It depends on every project and, and, you know, what the possibilities are, how it's going to be cut together. And I guess maybe the big advantage for a choreographer is that you can just show everyone the move you're thinking of. And with stunt people, sometimes they'll do that. And I'm like, please don't. I don't want you to hurt yourself. Like, don't do a, mm-hmm. a front flip in front of everyone, please. <laughs> you know? For instance, in Baby Got Back, the dancers were on this small podium. Mm-hmm. And initially, they wanted the podium to turn while they were dancing. And the, and the dancers were in these massive, massive stiletto heels. So then I had to really tame the movement down because I didn't want A to fall. They're spinning, so I don't want them to fall. I don't want to break their ankles, you know, et cetera. So there was a lot of movement we had to do just in place. And then we would do a few takes where they put on combat boots and then they could really, really move. Mm-hmm. Sorry, guys, my headphones keep falling out. Okay, so you're the choreographer. You do Sir Mix a lot. You're like, this shit is too easy. I need to be directing. There were a few years in between there where I had children, I raised children, et cetera. So I did also do costumes. For a long time after I did choreography, it was just a weird, easy transition where so I would always help the costume designer with the costumes, what the dancer should wear, what what's appropriate, how will they be able to move in this? And then I had jobs where producers would call and say, you were so helpful with the costumes. Like we have this gig, this music video, but we have no dancers. Like, would you want to do the costumes? And I was like, yeah, why not? Like I'm I'm always wanting to learn every aspect of everything that I can. So I did costumes for a while as well, like both together. And I worked with some really great directors in the commercial field, mainly, who were like, you, this is your thing. Like, you should be directing. How did they realize that you should be directing? I'm super collaborative. I like to have people's back. I like to see the big picture. I worked with directors like at Anonymous Content and places like that, where they sort of gave me free reign with the look, like the full look. So if I was going this direction with the costumes, then I would say we should tell the production designer that the background mm. should be this or, mm-hmm. you know, back and forth between that kind of a thing. And Can I tell you that I love that when like the production designer is like, hey, like, let me talk to mm-hmm. costumes because like this wall is going to be. And I know it's like doesn't happen all the time. obvious, but I don't know about you guys, but I've worked on so many jobs where I have to like either force them to talk to each other or they do you think that's a symptom of them, shrinking you know? budgets though yeah. like i kind of had always thought like oh it's just because everyone is always like prepping something and shooting something and wrapping something all at once always and that they would love to do that but they just don't have the bandwidth i think it's that i mean i, I guess something kind of related to shrinking budgets is sometimes working with newer people and i think maybe sometimes costumes doesn't want to be in the hierarchy mm-hmm. under art, you know, and if the production designer's like, "Hey, you better not get anything green because we're shooting on green screen," costume designer will be like, "Don't tell me what to do." I mean, personally, I think it's incumbent on the director, really, right? To sure. I mean, that's yeah. the director's vision, and yeah, to facilitate that and, discussion and what the director wants, and they certainly should be having that conversation with as a team. I think like the the production designer, the costume designer, the cinematographer, the director, like. That's the core of what your look is going to be, whether it's just a super stylized or just like a simple, you know, docu style thing. You're still trying to make it all sort of cohesive. No, absolutely. It's funny. Just in thinking about the way that 
my style has changed over the years. I feel like there was a period of time where I was a little too dictatorial, where it was just mm-hmm. like, I want it to be this, this, and this. Here's the swipe. Here's the Amazon link. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> and not only does it sort of eliminate the opportunity for people to throw in their own ideas, it also teaches them not to pitch in the first place. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? They just kind of check out and because they've got enough stuff on their plate, they end up doing other things anyway. And I think that the more you facilitate the their involvement and their opportunity to take over the whole look, the more empowered they are to be like, hey, maybe I should let production or art know X, Y, or Z is happening or talk to the DP about the way that it's, you know, how are they lighting it? Like all of that stuff, which makes complete sense that it kind of snowballs into just actually directing it, right? Because you do certain, either you cross a line where it's like, well, if you're making all of these decisions and you're communicating with all of the different stakeholders, then what is the director doing, right? And Okay, so you mastered choreography and costumes. What's the next step? Were you making like shorts or anything during this time? I wasn't. Mm-mm. I was working and raising twin girls and two stepsons. And it was just something that I knew that down the line, I really wanted to pursue. And I, you know, I really did think I would start in music videos. And I met with a couple of music companies and, you know, the mm-hmm. budget that by that point had gone down to literally nothing. And since when I you say so- literally nothing, that you mean like $1,000, right? Yeah. Like something like yeah, that. Yeah, like, exactly. But, but sometimes actually literally yeah. zero dollars. Do you want to do it? Oh, right. You're, we'll give you the privilege of shooting this. Yeah. Taking this song. Exactly. So I decided to start with a commercial instead. And I got a script from a couple of creatives at the Richards Group. And it had been up for their Super Bowl spot. Because I had worked with them as a stylist, they sort of knew me and what my point of view was. And one of the creatives was like, what I remember about you (laughs) is how you argued with me about how the woman should wear this jacket in this scene, which we didn't think she should. And you explained the whole backstory of why she needed to wear this jacket, which I would kind of go there in the, those kind of circumstances, just creatively. And he said, so, you know, I just knew that you had a point of view. And, and so they gave me the script. It was really broadly comedic, much more broad than I was intending to go at that point. So we sort of rewrote it tonally. Wait, can I take a step back for a second? Yeah. You have this pretty... Cool choreography resume you have. Now you're doing costumes on commercials and music videos and all sorts of things. And you're like, I want to start working on my directing reel so that people Mm -hmm. will hire me as a director because I think people have told me they think I would be a good director. Do you say like, okay, I'm going to make a spec commercial. That's like your first idea. Yes. Um, Or someone says you got to get a reel, make, get, shoot some specs. And so then you approach some people that you worked with before and you say, hey, do you guys have any? Scripts I can direct? Is that kind of the move? Exactly that. And they it was and, exactly that. And they said, yeah. Like you approached agency copywriters. Is that true? Did they Correct. did they get yeah. anything out of it? Yeah. Right? Like they give you the scripts. Is there anything reciprocal of like, oh, and now my I loved this spot and maybe I can use this as a resume piece? Is is that part of their thinking for saying yes to giving you the the copy? I think they wanted to help me out, number one. It was a pretty epic spot, to be honest with you. And I think they wanted to see it come 
to light. Like it, it was up for the last two spots for the Super Bowl for Bridgestone Tires. And the other one won out, and this was theirs, and they gotcha. really so just the edification of seeing it so, become yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, fair. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. someone care about it. But yeah. so on that on, on that note of it being an epic spot, were you like, hey, I want to, I'm going to put put ten thousand dollars of my own money, or I'm going to put five thousand or fifteen? Like, how does where does how do you start thinking about the budget? And like, because I mean, you know, I, I've wanted to shoot spec things all the time, and I'm all like how can I shoot this for free, you know? And then I'll come up with an idea and this would be awesome, except we need to rent this specific car or get a permit for this thing. So tell us a little bit about like how you approach the, you know, like which spot, you like the production of it. Well, I just, you know, I didn't go to film school, right? So I never spent that money. This was going to be the first thing I was going to direct. And I just felt like out of the gate, this is going to have to be good. And I had mm-hmm. been working at that level mm-hmm. in, com- you know, in commercials and music videos with those kinds of directors. So I just, um, you know, my husband and I just made the decision, like, we're going to invest in this spot to start my career. And it went to Cannes. Like, it, mm-hmm. <laughs> it did mm-hmm. do what I wanted it to do. Um, because it's an epic spot. A kid grows up through the commercial. Um, and we shot it like one day in March and then we shot it again in June. Actually, the creatives came out from Texas for one of the shoot days um, because they wanted to be a part of it. They saw like the initial footage that I had that I had shot and they loved it so much. So they wanted to be a part of the shoot. And it just it was a huge calling card for me. And I I just I wasn't a kid. I wasn't fresh out of film school. So I just knew that if I was going to mm-hmm. do it, I had to come out. I was had to be willing to. So so you don't have to say a number, but you're saying that it was a significant amount of money, basically. Well, it was partially shot on Mm -hmm. film. So let's start there. (laughs) You know, that was still happening a little bit because I wanted it to be big, because I wanted it to be epic. I just knew I had to make the investment and I was doing tons of costuming jobs and just saving my money to put toward it. And that's what I did. Well, if a new filmmaker came to you and said, hey, I want to get into commercials, would you recommend to them that they go all out on their first commercial they direct? I guess I feel like the thing we hear a lot is like, oh, the first thing I made was not good. So I'm like, I wish I would have not spent a lot of money on the first few things. I mean, it sounds like you made something. It's not a apples to apples thing, though, right? Because you had been making things for years at this point, even though you weren't the, the quote unquote director. Right. You had seen how creative went from an idea to execution many, 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 many times. So you felt basically safer to make that that bet on yourself. Whereas like if you had just come out of film school and like done a few shorts or something like that, that might not be as smart a bet, basically. You know... Look, I mean, people come out of film school and make amazing things, right? As well. And technically um, that is true. I just <laughs> what I mean is that, you know, I was starting in my 40s, you guys. Like I wasn't like I didn't have time to go, oh, let me just do mm-hmm. a scene with two people sitting at a table. Like I didn't I didn't feel like I had time for that, you know? I guess what I don't want to put words in Oren's mouth, but I'm saying if I were going to bet, say, $20,000 on a person making a good first commercial, mm-hmm. I would 
one without a doubt go for the professional in their 40s than any film student even if they seemed like a fucking genius i guess is what i'm saying also i knew the world like you're saying you know i knew the commercial world these creatives are top level creatives who were they were making super bowl spots like you know so i had i had to mm-hmm. step up to that plate they were giving me a great script and it was an epic script and i just decided I want to do it. Now, did really well, won a bunch of awards, like got me a ton of attention. What it also got me was creatives that I met afterward telling me, well, if you just had six more spots like that on your reel, Mm -hmm. you'd be working all the time. So that is the question. You got a lot of great attention. Did it lead to additional work? I got jobs out of it for sure. And pretty quickly. Yeah. I got some commercial work pretty quickly but not a ton. To get that work, like, were you sending it to, to production companies or producers or just sharing things? Mm-hmm. How did I got signed right away because the spot went to Cannes and it was like in Shoot Magazine, all this stuff, shots, like it, it got a lot of How attention. How did you get it to Cannes? Did you submit it? Yeah, I Because it was it. on spec, right? Like Bridgestone mm-hmm. had nothing to do with it. Right. Did you try to get them to buy it? Which is a question we we used to get a lot. We actually haven't gotten it for a while, but like, hey, I'm going to make a spec ad for Nike and hopefully they'll buy it. Was that ever like part of what you were hoping for? I mean, it was my dream, but it put the creatives in a little bit of a sticky situation because it was like they were making these mm-hmm. half a million dollar Super Bowl spots, right? And then here I was just coming along with my little, you know, $20,000 spec that really probably should have been half a million dollars. And that would be weird for them. You know, like why are they spending so much money on their other spots. It was talked about, definitely. And then it was just kind of like, it was a little bit politically incorrect for them. So. So that's awesome. You go to Con, Can, 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 and you (laughs) get signed. What's the company that you signed with? I signed with Harpoon Pictures out of New York. They took me on a sales trip to Chicago and met tons of creatives, did a bunch of showcases and stuff. But again, this is one thing I would say to people who are just starting. I mean, you can get a career off of one spot, but mm-hmm. not usually, right? You need to have a few more. So that was my naivete that I didn't realize that I really needed. Like that spot and maybe two or three other at least mm-hmm. good ones. You know, because right, Harpoon is trying to, to pitch as... you, right? And they're right. like, here's her spot. And they're like, what else does she have? And they're like, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But they did, they did get me some work. So that was, that was cool. But, you know, still at that time, it was like, there weren't very many female directors working in commercials. So it was really rare to see them, you know. How did you transition to the more narrative stuff? Do you still do commercials now? You're kind of uh-huh. bounce back and forth? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Just as my girls were getting older, I just wanted to keep expanding creatively. I wrote and directed a short film called Disconnected, and that got me into the Sony TV directing program. I also made a documentary about dancers who have Down syndrome, and that led me to some more docu-style work for like Bumble. You know, I created a little series for Bumble called Pure Corazon about Latinx daters. And I just, you know, I was just, it's like, okay, my kids are older. I can you know, take on more responsibility. I can like let the creative, you know, Mm -hmm. evolution continue because it's tough as a mom, you know? Sure. Yeah. You guys know your parents. 
I, and I want to get back to that because I think that's really valuable for listeners at home. But but I, I am hearing kind of an interesting eclecticism that I want to dig in on a tiny bit too, right? You said you shot commercials, a short film. You created a, a web series that sounds like maybe it's a little like docu-reality style and then also did a straight documentary. That So that's a lot of different things all happening mm-hmm. at once. And this this Bridgestone piece, was it tonally in tune with the other body of work or like? Yeah, because I love everything. I love so many things. Right. And I don't even though like, you know, you guys know my husband. He always says you have to be in, you know, you have to put yourself sure, in a yeah. box. You have to be. Right. But it one helps thing. when you're um, a person who nope. mostly likes and has a skill set in that one box. Do you know what I mean? That's easy to say if you're an action movie junkie who was a stuntman before, you know. I know. Jordan talks about like, are you a comedy director? Are you a, mm-hmm. you know, cars director or kids or whatever? But I do feel like just from looking at your work, like even though it is docu style or documentary and comedy and branded series with real people, they all, from what I can see, seem to kind of center around relationships in a way. And, and I know, you know, I know all stories are about relationships, but kind of you, you have a lot of like romantic relationships, which, you know, obviously your latest film is a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, even though you're working in all these different mediums, there does seem to be like some sort of like kind of commonality between them, like kind of stories with heart, even like in the commercial work and stuff. I think there's some intimacy mm-hmm. to it all. You know, it's like, and that's one of the things that I do like about docu storytelling. And I just came off of a really big project um, where I traveled to you know, five different states um, working for the CDC. And I, I really am genuinely interested in people and relationships. And so there is, I like there to be an intimacy to my work, whether it's comedic or it's, or it's deep stories of what's going on in their real lives. Like I just, um, I'm just fascinated by people. So that's your I think, line. Yeah, there yeah. is that. But I mean, I I don't, you know, the docu stuff sort of came up just randomly, to be honest with you. I was at a dance recital for one of my daughters. And before her class performed, this group came on and the, you know, their instructor came out and she said, you know, this is the first time we're performing here. And it was a group of dancers who had Down syndrome. And I had never seen anything like that in my life. Like I didn't have any experience with anyone with Down syndrome, but I was a dancer too. And I could just see the joy that they felt being out there on stage. And I just, I just said, I have to do something. I have to do something with this. I don't know what it is, but I, but I want to know these dancers and I want to do something with this group. And that's how I ended up making that documentary. That's amazing. I mean, your story is really inspirational. I mean, I feel like the way you're, Telling about like being in your 40s and having to have like that first thing be like a hit. Um, it's like a lot of pressure probably on, on a person. Like, I'm sure we have a lot of listeners in their 40s that are like, oh, it's probably too late. I mean, we literally get emails from 25 year olds saying, like, is it too late? Like, I went to film school, but then I like worked for an insurance company. I don't know if I still have time. <laughs> and we're like, yes, you idiot. You can still do it. But it, it's like super inspirational, I think, especially the fact that you're making movies for, you know, streamers and you directed TV, right? Also, I just did my first episode last year um, for the Garcias on HBO Max. 
there are a lot of overlapping skills between short form and documentary and long form scripted. But there's also, I imagine, a little bit of a learning curve. What was surprising about doing oh. television and film that that maybe your short form career hadn't totally prepared you for? Mm, I mean, just how long the projects <laughs> have go for. I mean, this, you know, the movie, which is completely truncated schedule compared to most people's experience in movies, right? But I mean, I was working on it for eight months. Yeah, how many shooting days? 15. It's intense. I don't know that I would have been able to pull it off as well as I feel that I did. And that's not to say there aren't a million things I wish I would have done differently the way we all do after projects are complete. Had I not been in this business for so long, doing every kind of job under the sun in choreography and as a stylist and then as a director, it's been my onset film school, you know, for all these years. But still, you're shooting like 30 seconds a day or maybe like a three minute music video a day. And now you have to shoot like five. Well, minutes you know, I, I do say day, right? the, the thing that film school tends to not teach you are those the fundamentals of like decision making and being cool under mm. pressure and understanding the politics of a space or the ramifications of decisions. Like that's the thing that film school just doesn't teach you at all, basically, because it, everything's in such a structured environment. The stakes are so low, even if you think they're that they're high, like that thesis shoot, people shoot on weekends, you know, for like six weeks or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's just not the same as like shooting a feature in, in three weeks, three consecutive weeks without breaks or sleep or any of the, you know, so that battle testing, the training doesn't really kind of come into play as much. You know, I think the thing that really has helped me both in the TV space and even doing the movie with a new studio, you know, overseeing it or producing it, I should say, is working in commercials. I mean, people don't understand, you know, when you work with Nike, there's a lot of people you have to answer to, you know, and it's a very intense environment and you have to stay on brand and tonally you have to stay where they're the brand is. And there are a lot of people you have to collaborate mm -hmm. to get what you want as well. And even though yeah. And you by know, the way, if you love a take, you can't just go on to the next shot, right? Like you have to have seven that's people right. say that H they Half of them it. were on their phones and that's they're right. asking for playback. In TV, yeah. it's similar, right? I mean, we know that TV is the writer's medium. And so in TV, you get your take, you know, A, you have to go in and do your episode and it totally mm -hmm. has to match the rest of the series, obviously. Again, to me, that feels very mm -hmm. similar to the advertising space. Like we're, we're trying to stay on brand for the show. And then you're dealing with a group of writers or a showrunner. Again, you're bringing your take to it, but then it's their sign-off. This is their project that they've been creating for all, could be years. I will say that the main difference, and I have not really directed TV, so I could be wrong about this, but it seems to me like the main difference is the showrunner has an idea of how production works and really wants the show to be good they want to win awards they want to get in a second season they want people to love the show in advertising they tend to have no idea how production works <laughs> the <laughs> things that they care about are the least important things like they care so much more about what shoes someone wears than like if a line of dialogue makes sense and we are never going to see the shoes okay so it doesn't matter what shoes they wear and they just care so much i mean primarily sure. about yeah, what yeah. their boss is going to think right to, they're covering their ass but also like what the marketing message is and it will always trump 
what the story is, you know, to me, at least in TV, hopefully you're aligned right. in the goal, even maybe if you disagree on how to get there. Um, but anyway, sorry. No, 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 that's very true. I mean, it is, how do you work with people? How do you work mm -hmm. with people who are bringing the money, the bag of money to your project? Mm -hmm. How do you get diplomatically get what you want out of it as well? You know, so uh, those are things like, I don't know that I would have been super great at that mm -hmm. when I was a 25 mm -hmm. year old choreographer, just like traveling around the world. Like, I know what I'm doing. Like, you don't know how yeah. to dance like I dance. And I, I don't know. director is that she better wear the fucking jacket. <laughs> if you understood the character like I do, you'd know. <laughs> so let's go to Diamond in the Rough. So this is your first feature, right? Yes. And how did you get it? So my agents brought me the script. It happened very, very fast. Literally, I had just gotten back from directing the Garcias in Mexico. And um, I was uh -huh. pitching on a couple of movies. And your agents are, is that APA? Uh-huh. Do you tell them like, hey, I'm looking for this type of script or anything? Or they're just like constantly trying to find material for you and sending you scripts? Yeah, it's been sort of mostly constantly trying to find material for me. Because I've pitched on mm -hmm. just a wide variety of things. And when they send you a script, does that mean that the person that wrote the script knows you're reading it? Or is it like, hey, yes. here's a script. If you like it, we'll get you a meeting. No, it's usually the person that the production company is is mm -hmm. sending me the script, you know, through my agent. You know, my agent submits me and then if they like my work, then they'll give me the script to read. Um, it's sort of how how it was. So they're already you know that they're already kind of in interested in you when you're reading the script. Yeah. Yeah, because you have to put in the whole pitch, you know, that's, you guys know, that whole, whole amount of free work sure. that we do to try to get jobs. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't pitched that. I pitched maybe on like two or three movies. I mean, I guess I pitched like years ago, but, but I'm curious, what's harder, pitching on a feature or on a commercial? Like doing a commercial treatment or a feature pitch? Ooh, I have mm. a really hard time with commercial treatments. I yeah. really welcome do. to everybody. <laughs> I really do. I get. I have tantrums about it. Um, we all do. We need a band together. It's just the, like I just come on. Don't sure. make me write twenty five pages about a thirty second spot. It's making me crazy. Um, it's just I and I'm really not a bullshitter. That's one of my biggest problems. Is that I really just come straight out with how I want to approach it. This is what I think it should be. And that, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I just don't want to, it just makes me crazy when I'm told you have to add more. I'm just like, uh, what is there to add? What do and you then, want me to say? Yeah. One time mm. I, I ended up getting the job, but they were like, you know, the other director that they really liked wrote about the like complimentary colors and what they mean. And I'm like, okay, so do you want me to add a page to my treatment that's about color science like <laughs> well hurt. it could if you think of it as time i'm spending it hurts me <laughs> but are you coming to pitch with visuals are you making a deck are you playing a the garden state soundtrack as you talk out loud about how you would no um, block i have scenes? i've done a variety of things like sometimes my agents have said don't make a deck yet mm -hmm. like see how the call goes like how do you feel about it so you have a call just like a just like a commercial, you'll have like an intro call. Mm -hmm. You read the script and then, you know, you get on with the, the studio or the, who, you know, the, the producers, producers. Who, whoever, and just go through your ideas. I mean, it's very similar to the commercial space. 
Um, and then if I feel like it went great, then I'll do a, you know, I'll do a deck if I, and I'll offer it up. Um, sure. which of course they're waiting for you to anyway, but, um, for diamond, I did one before I started because I wanted mm -hmm. the movie. Like I wanted it. I read the script, you know, I read the script on Monday. I was pitching on Wednesday and I wanted this movie, um, more than any of the other ones that I had been, you know, pitching on. So I came in with a deck and I shared it on the Zoom. What was the, the thing that you fell in love with in the script that made you want it? Well, I mean, two things. One is a Latina-led rom-com, okay? And that's just a rarity in this, you know, in the world of cinema. Like, you just don't see it. And it's a, it's a Latina who's, you know, not, it's not immigrant porn. It's not narco porn. It's, um, it's just a messy Gen Z young woman at a, not at a difficult time of her life. And yeah, it's not JLo. And, um, and it was smart and it was funny and it was crass. And it was all the things that, you know, I, we don't get to see ourselves sure. like that. We just don't. So that part of it I loved. And it was really well written. Like from the get go, it was really well written, even though I worked on a pass, a director's pass as well. But like, I loved it from the get go. Also, so they're just I not really making that it. many like comedies or rom-coms period anymore. You know what I mean? The number of those, like that's mm -hmm. the thing that you want to be doing. There aren't that many shots. So you're like, this is the one I'm going for it. So you went, you went ahead, you said, I'm, you made the mm -hmm. deck already. Is that something you were like, Hey everyone, like I got a little zealous, take a look at the deck. I'd love to send it along at the end of the call. The, like walk us through the, the, that, how it was different. Basically. I was sort of, had it, you know, mm -hmm. ready to go on my computer and was like, let me share the screen and like, let me show you what I was thinking. And, you know, um, and so they were they were pretty excited about and it. And you're pitching remotely. Ideas, you, so. you weren't in the room. I didn't do any writing though. Oh, it was a nice. purely that's a nice. visual deck. Yeah, yeah. Mm -mm. It was on Zoom. What's so? What's yeah. in the deck? What do you include? It in was just in your deck. I just included um, just just straight visuals. I did no writing for it. Right, but just what are the visuals? Are, they, are you like really. this is the world? These are the characters. This is the, the world. Sequence? Not the world. Mm -hmm. The 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 lead character. Um, Ariana Alvarez, like ideas of who she could be. Um, and like casting ideas? Well, I mean, I didn't specifically have a casting page, but I used a couple of like leading Latina Gen Z actresses in scenes where sort of felt mm -hmm. like germane to the movie. Um, mm -hmm. I did a lot of like stylized wardrobe looks, um, mm -hmm. obviously a, coming from a that dance world number. as well. No dance You're number, like, but we, we almost did one at the end of the movie. We almost did. We just, we didn't have you time for a 15-day shoot. In our 15-day shoot, we had no time for that. Do you feel like, well, A, was that clear in the, in the script or is that something that you added? And B, is that something where you're like in the deck? Do you feel like it's a ghost to go ahead and just be like, here's Ferris Bueller, here's One Crazy Summer, here's John Hughes movies or whatever? Or do you kind of try to like, make it a little bit more subtle with what you're referencing and try to find more obscure imagery that still hints at those ideas, but isn't literally screen grabs from Ferris Bueller or something. Well, the tone was de definitely was feeling <laughs> sort of nostalgic, right? Already that was built into the script. 
And I loved the idea of of a slightly nostalgic vibe, but not, but you know, sort of elevated and modernized. But I used no screenshots from no films in the treatment in in my deck. Mm-mm. Wait, you didn't anyway, use there any- was there were. There was literally nothing that made sense sure. for this golf movie that wasn't yeah, yeah, yeah. so old and ridiculous. You know, like it just yeah. didn't. You're like, oh, I don't want to Photoshop in visually. golf clubs into their hands or whatever dumb thing. Exactly. So yeah. yeah. So then, what did you pull? What were your references? Like besides wardrobe, like like what's what's this is a good question. What was the first image in your deck? Like what's the title page image? The mm. title page is a literal close up of a golf ball in in deep in grass with a beautiful sky behind it mm-hmm. like just a beautiful green with the white ball like just instantaneous like this is going to yeah, be great. pretty this is going to be beautiful but nothing too mm-hmm. on the nose in terms of like specific scenes because well not i just couldn't find it you guys i mean you know how hard it is to find images oh i spend days on end yeah especially if you're trying to not show movies or you know you're not right I, when I pitch on commercials, I literally mostly show other commercials, which I feel like is a no-no, but I don't know. Well, it's funny. When I pitch on commercials, I mostly yeah. pull from movies. But when you do movies, it feels weird to do that, unless it's a really explicit pastiche, unless it's like really, really like what if. Mm-hmm. Right. If Tarantino is pulling old Japanese or Kung Fu movies or something. Yeah. Right. You worked with Buffalo 8 on this movie, right? Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about like how they were involved? So they did the post. We did the post, um, all the finishing through Buffalo 8. So just I didn't have a ton of interaction with them, to be honest, because we had an editor, mm-hmm. you know, freelance editor who wasn't through Buffalo 8. So I worked with her, um, Christine McPherson, who's amazing, by the way. And so we worked together for three months, you know, the beginning of the year and then we did our sound mix at buffalo eight and they, you know they did all the finishing they took on the distribution but creator plus financed the movie and you shot all in la obviously i guess if you have 15 days you're probably not yeah bouncing so around we too used much. we used calamigos ranch to play as the country club and then we had one day on an actual mm-hmm. golf course um because that's all we could afford um, and then we also shot, you know, in a restaurant, an office, a house mm-hmm. kind of a thing. But mainly it was 10 days at Calamigos Ranch, just playing for so many different, sure. so many different things. The golf course is so crazy because the amount of money they spend on watering the golf course in one day is way more than you would ever want to pay them <laughs> to shoot there, you know? Like, Insanely expensive. Yeah. So expensive. Insanely expensive. And they're not going to shut down for a little independent movie. I mean, just, they're just not. Like, they, they make so much money in fees. Because we shot at a private course. So, you know, their membership fees, like, no. Did you do any of the kind of, like, indie tricks of, like, okay, well, we're going to, you know, make this seem like it's a hole when, in fact, the, all of the players are just deep, deep background and we're just on some, some grass or anything like that? Were there any kind of tactics for the day that helped you optimize that shoot specifically? You know, for the golf day specifically, um, we did bring in a second unit uh, because A, the only one of the actresses really was a golfer. Mm-hmm. Like she actually was a really good golfer, Caitlin Carver. And then Samantha Boscarino, the lead, she was literally just learning on this mm. movie. Um, and, you know, we needed to, we needed to have a legitimate, you know, uh, 
a legitimate golfer. So we brought in. Like to knew what she was doing. Yeah. So we brought in a second unit and we had golf doubles. Um, And actually Jordan Brady, my husband did second unit for me, which that was really fun. And yeah. And so we would sort of, um, we would shoot the scenes and then send, literally send like, photos of which way the ball needed to go depending on how the actors were and then we would jump to the next hole we only shot on three holes but uh we would jump to the next hole and then they would go in with the stunt with the golf doubles and then they would do you know they would do those same shots in the same directions um that we had shot it so it was just it was sort of this like this you know Mm -hmm. hopping over each other kind of thing um the whole day that's so smart though i love that and that was actually our only that was actually our only um, day of overtime. The entire shoot was a 10, oh, 10 wow. hour days. Yeah. And then. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's crazy. I know. It was, was this, it was shot during COVID. Shot during I'm COVID. Yeah. Um, but that was a 14 hour day specifically because we had to, we were using the pro shop mm-hmm. as well. So we had to do the whole, all of the golf and then, and then, you know, go In inside. <laughs> it was, you guys, it was nuts. I mean, we're shooting, it was fall, mm-hmm. you know, it was like the light right, was going down right, at 430. Right, right. Like it was, it was a challenging, challenging shoot. And what did you shoot on? Alexa? Yeah, we, we shot on Alexa minis. Cool. And were you using like, I, sometimes like, I guess if you have to go really fast, you know, people shoot on zoom lenses and stuff. Do you guys do anything technical like that to help you move faster? Yeah, we shot on Zooms, but I mean, the main thing was, you know, two cameras. Like I had to really fight mm-hmm. for two cameras. And I just knew that with a cast the size that we had, um, I just didn't, I, you know, initially I, on my, on my initial pitch, I said, we definitely have to shoot with two cameras, get this movie in 15 days. And then once we got into production, they were like, oh, it's getting too expensive because it ended up being a union shoot. And, you know, so costs like mm-hmm. were going skyrocketing. And so then they wanted to only shoot with one camera. And I was just like, you guys, I don't think I can actually make this happen if two cameras are not rolling. And make it look good. If two cameras are not rolling 85% of the time. Like, of course, there are some shots where you just can't, you know, you're not shooting with two cameras. One's in the way, And insert of a ball going into the hole, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. But, you know, but with a cast, the size that we had, like I really just needed to have two cameras. So I was very lucky that in the end they, they did that for me. Yeah. Dialogue driven. Like you need to see people saying things. You need react. I mean, you need reactions Um, in the moment. Like it's, you can't, it's comedy. Like you're missing these amazing beats if you don't have it. And that's actually what the, the TV show taught me, you know, shooting on the Garcias with two cameras and an amazing um, producing director Carlos Gonzalez, who was also the DP on the show, he was amazing oh, wow. with you know teaching me really the whole two camera setup. Because give us some tricks. What's what's what did he teach you? What did you learn about two cameras? Well, I mean, just I had never shot with two cameras in mm-hmm. commercials. Sure, right? Like just never. I mean, I did my short with two with two cameras, but you know that was also because of because of time. But um, you know, just the typical, just the typical shooting the wide and also getting someone's close up at the same time in the same direction. Like just those kinds of small little details, just, Hey, you got that whole take, you got the wide and you got her reactions twice. Okay. Now let's turn around. Like it just, there were, it was just invaluable to have two cameras. Like, I don't know how we would have done it without it, without having two. 
Also, what one of the things that really saved us too was Steadicam. Like we only got Steadicam like maybe four mm-hmm. days, I think. But when we were just in these time crunches, these big scenes, and it was like, okay, we're running out of light. We only have the actor for another hour, whatever. You know, just bust out the Steadicam and all, you know, all props to Nick. Wait, how does that help you? Because I find like, especially like with walk and talk scenes, like you have a Steadicam, you're shooting like a two shot or a three shot or whatever. It's really hard to find mm-hmm. coverage that cuts. Well, no, it. you have to commit to, you have to commit to, you, this is how we're shooting it. Like you, you have to commit to, to mm-hmm. the edit that you're not getting coverage, that you're, it's a, it's a one like you're getting it in one take because it's just, first of all, it's so hard to, you're saying, like you're saying, it's so hard to do the coverage and have it work. Um, but, but I worked with Megan Stacy, the cinematographer on Diamond in the Rough, and she and I had also done um, the Bumble series together. And when it was just push coming to shove and we were just running out of time, um, man, that steady cam saved us like so many times. We were because lucky. you could get like two or three setups in one setup. Is that exactly why? like we were just going to we were going to start on him. She was going to come and land. They were going to come this way. Boom. Scenes over. Like that's just you had to commit to that. It was kind of it was scary. <laughs> was there a moment where you were like. Okay, I have four setups. We have 15 minutes till the sun's down. How am I going to get all four setups? And then, like, the ghost of Jeanette was like, <laughs> Jeanette, you're a choreographer. That's right. You can do this in one. And then you're like, one, two, three. And yeah. And then you're you know like, what? Interestingly, both the lead out. women in the movie were also dancers. So they took, they could understand beats like so well. So it was just like, okay, you're going to. Chip the ball onto the court. The camera's going to be behind you. As you turn for her reaction, we're going to come around you, and you're then you're going to come and pick up the ball. Like we literally were doing it like that. And, and on mm-hmm. the seven beat, and it was on that. The take take two beat. beats. Look back at her. Let the camera move around you. Then keep, like it was that kind of thing. So it was really lucky that these actresses had dance backgrounds. I have to. Did say. you? They were. Really? They had a real great awareness of timing with the camera. Were there ever moments in the edit? Where you were like, ah, nailed it. Or like, oh, maybe I wish we could have, maybe I should have grabbed an insert or something like that. Like the, the decisions in the moment felt right. But like, were they confirmed in the edit? Mostly. Mostly, yes, they were confirmed. And I, I have to give that to the mm-hmm. cast, really, because they just could nail their performance every time. That was great. One of the things I didn't have any time to do in this movie on this shoot were like, transitions you know mm-hmm, really the sure, time for we just sure. there were no time for transitions in this shoot schedule when you say transitions do you mean like an establishing shot sun goes down yes. or here at night or do you mean do you mean like okay we end on somebody putting this down and we pick up on someone lifting this up like, do you mean no mostly mostly establishing shots to establish the new world we were in you know those kind of transition scenes that like get us into right. like oh now we're that pace, yes. they give you a break yes. in the movie. That just like, there was just no time for that. I know I have to wrap up soon, but I just want to talk about your cast real quick. Cause I know, you know, your leads, like from what I've seen there, everyone's awesome. You have some kind of up and comers. And then you also have some just people that everyone recognizes like a David mm-hmm. Keckner, you know, and like, I love Rizwan uh, Manji from like a million things I've seen him in. Um, I don't know if people know his name, but they definitely know right. his face, you know, was it, Hard to get them? Did you have to pitch them on the movie? Like, did they have to see 
your work to attach themselves or is it just like a money thing? You know, I am, we had a list. I mean, obviously we were going through lists and, um, gosh, Rizwan was my first choice for Mike Reddy, that role. And yeah, they just sent it to his agent and he read the script and he jumped on board. It was like, we had, I mean, I have to say we really, you know, when you are on one of those projects where it all just sort of comes together in a way that just mm-hmm. works out perfectly. This is how this movie worked <laughs> yep. out for me. I mean, I don't, I honestly, because when I say to you, I got the script on a Monday, I read it, I pitched on the Wednesday, I got hired on Friday, I started on Monday and there it went. Like it just yeah. went. And do you think like, because it was going so fast, because they had a start date and air date mm-hmm. and the, this and all this stuff that like, it was easier to get people on board. Like Dave Keckner, Hey, we need you for this day and this day. Be- Yes or no? I mean, maybe, you know, Keckner was pretty busy. Like the train was so moving. The train was moving. We had, we definitely had definitive dates. I mean, we did work around David Keckner and Rizwan, you know, and their schedules. We rescheduled a lot of stuff around them. But man, I just got so lucky with the actors. I mean, Samantha Boscarino as a lead, she just came in and just nailed it for me. And we actually had one day where we shot 10 scenes, albeit they were mm-hmm. all in a house. Okay. Sure. They were all in one house. And we were shooting with two cameras, but it was like 22 setups, 22. You had to be happy, be messy, cry, like be mad, like all in one day. And she just nailed it. And I mean, that's the thing. When you bring these actors on, you want to make sure that they are, um, they're joining Mm -hmm. you for that train ride that's about to take off. Okay. If people want to check out the movie, go to creatorplus.com. It's also on streaming on VOD. It's called Diamond in the Rough. Um, do you have your next project lined up? You said you just shot something, right? It's like it's like a docu series for the CDC. But I did, you guys, I did pitch on a project. I can't say what it is, but um, and I all my fingers and toes crossed because I really want it to be a great project. Fingers for crossed. Me, so. when, when you book it and and you're you, it's released, come back on the show. Tell us all about it. I'd love to. Yeah, if you're listening to this podcast, cross your fingers. Unless you're pitching against Jeanette. D- DM her on in Instagram afterwards. Yeah. Sorry. Team Jeanette. Um, well, Jeanette, do you have a few more minutes to hang out and endorse with us? Sure. Unpaid endorsements. Okay. So I've got a couple things. Neither are very interesting. First of all, it was Amazon Prime Day. And on Gizmodo, somewhere it was like, here's the best deals. And the number one deal was this Nespresso mm-hmm. machine. And so I bought it. I don't care what I'm buying as long as it's a good deal. And it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Do you know how a coffee maker, a regular coffee maker heats up water mm-hmm. and the water turns into steam and then it kind of goes up and it drips through the coffee grounds and, and you, that's drip coffee. Um, but espresso, mm-hmm. like, you know, if you have an espresso machine, not a, not a Nespresso, any espresso machine, the water is like pressurized and it pushes the water really hard through the espresso grounds and it it's just makes coffee in a different way. And so, an espresso machine, unlike a Keurig machine or any one of those other, other pod machines, it works like an espresso machine that actually has like a laser inside and it like heats the water really hot and it pressurizes it and gets the perfect temperature and makes pretty awesome coffee. But it also comes with this thing called the Arancino, which is the real game changer. It's like this cylinder that you put milk in and it creates like steamed frothed milk. And it's like, it does it in like 90 seconds and it's really delicious. And my daughter, she drinks what, what we call baby chinos, which is basically like a cappuccino, but without the espresso in it. 
and like a little vanilla. And it's like, I'm like the most popular dad in town now because I can make my own baby chinos at home in like 90 seconds. And they're actually like delicious, but also you can just throw a shot of espresso in there from the Nespresso machine or Matt, you, you're allowed to use mm-hmm. a different espresso machine if you'd like, or you can even just mix it with your percolated coffee or whatever, however you like to make your coffee. Okay. Well, I, I just have to comment. Can I comment that you're, you're create, you're Thanks. already creating a bougie girl. Okay. That's, this is going to come back to haunt you <laughs> when she's a teenager because you've been making her these baby Listen. chinos. And now when they're, when they're 14, they're going to, she's going to want the $280 jeans. Like I, this is a direct, I can make the direct link already. I'm telling you, you're in for it. You're in for I'm it. I'm literally showing her you're how to not for pay for this, but to actually get it at home just, for free. Just warning you. I have two daughters in college right now. So other thing, I have a treatment due tomorrow and I made my first treatment in mm. Google slides, which I've been avoiding forever because I feel like that's what agencies sure. do and they just have like a thousand animated gifs and it's just yeah, so annoying yeah. and they're always like leaving comments and notes and i just like it's just messy i prefer like a pdf that's clean and quiet but I'm, i actually worked with a treatment designer she did the first pass and then she just handed me the google doc mm. and it's just so easy to edit you know because it's just a google doc i was talking to the producer we we're looking at it together we're changing some of the wording we drag i drag an image in and he can see it instantly on the screen it's pretty cool i don't hate it Anyhow, those are my two things I've been thinking about. Jeanette, what do you what do you got? I am currently obsessed with the Audible version of Anna Karenina, read by Maggie Gyllenhaal. It is mm. oh. stunning. It is stunning. I'm in love with it. But Anna Karenina has always been one of my favorite books. I've been super slow to the audiobook space because mm-hmm. i'm just an old school person i like to hold it in my hands i don't love when people do voices okay so that's the thing that so that has kind of turned me off a couple every time i've tried to get into it and the thing about this version of anna karenina maggie gyllenhaal she takes it a very subtle approach to the voices like it's extremely subtle you can tell it's a different character but in the most subtle way and it's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm appreciating Tolstoy on a whole other level through this version that she reads. And it's, I'm obsessed with it. It is like something crazy, like 68 hours or something. Like it's, it's cause you know, it's like an <laughs> sure. 800 page book. It's wonderful. And other, other books that I tried to read, to, to listen to, and they do, it's multiple characters, different mm-hmm. actors reading. I can't get into that. I find it confusing. Yeah. It bothers me. Yeah, yeah. This version, I have to say, stunning. Well, that's awesome. So I realized I've got maybe the most Matt and Low endorsement of the year. Nathan Fielder has a new mm. show on HBO Max mm. called The Rehearsal. I love Nathan Fielder so, so much. This is kind of explicitly a an evolution of Nathan for you in a sense. He talks about the show. It's formally very similar in that it's kind of like docu-style pieces with Nathan's voiceover kind of connecting the dots on things it's clear that he's orchestrating the whole thing like he is the authorial voice but unlike it being business advice this time around nathan is facilitating complicated conversations for people in the first example there's a guy he wants to admit something to someone he's known for a long long time and so nathan goes to extreme efforts to fabricate the environment in which the the apology is going to happen. He hires actors. He, he's trying to basically 
allow this person to rehearse and think through every single possible iteration of this conversation so that they're totally prepared for it, both emotionally, but also tactically. So they can be like, okay, well, you know, if this happens, I have a plan for it. And what makes that ultimately, at least in this first episode, special is that there's a strange emotional experience that the Nathan for you pranks more or less always lacked for better or for worse. There were things about Nathan for you that can be kind of mean. You know, there were people who left that show unhappy about it and embarrassed. And I think his point is always that he was meant to be the butt of the joke, but people didn't always feel that way. And this show, like the, the punchline is always like human beings are weird. Aren't we're worried about things for no good reason or, or, I don't know. It's like maybe even more complicated than that. I haven't wrapped my head around it fully, but it's it's a meditation on what it is to interact with other people. And like, can we control that? Is that a good idea? Should I be worried about the things I can't control? All that stuff in a truly strange television show. It's a, It's absurd that it exists in the first place. So the rehearsal is coming out weekly. I think it's Sundays. That's normally HBO's big release day. So I'm going to guess it's then. But um, HBO Max, the rehearsal is my endorsement. Well, Jeanette, if people want to find out more about you, are you on social media anywhere? I am on social media. Yeah, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, JY Godoy Director. Well, if you guys have any questions, want to send us something to pass on to Jeanette, have any thoughts on babies having back or anything, email us, just shoot it pod at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us at just shoot it pod and you can find me. I'm on Instagram. Also, I'm at O'Kaplan on Twitter. I am at Smitey Pileg. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow across all social media. The show's at just shoot it pod across all social media. Tweet at us there and give our editor Noah a follow on TikTok at Noah Bayshore or uh, on, um, on Instagram as well. This episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. Thanks, Noah. And you're listening to music provided by the Free Music Archive and the Artist Jazar. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.